I'm Pastor Evan, delighted to be here. I have had a wonderful morning already of worshiping the living God. I hope you have too. Um, we're going to be in Psalm 90 again today, so I invite you to find Psalm 90. I've got a few things to say before we get to the text. But I do want to point out that I, I should never be surprised, but whenever we've opened the Psalms and whenever I've preached from the Psalms, I'm amazed at how much that works, even the hard stuff, works in people's lives. So my prayer this morning is as we finish up Psalm 90, that God is at work in your life through these words. As you've made these your prayer over the last few weeks, in some cases, um, this morning I have a little more of a challenge that you can take or not take as we dig into the final bits of Psalm 90. But let's let God's word wash over us today and refresh us. What we said at the beginning when we started Psalm 90 is what we're going to now say at the end, that I think the point of the psalm, among many, is that with God we have a home and a purpose, and without God we are homeless and aimless. And I think everything else you see in the psalm falls into place from that premise, from the very beginning. Lord, you've been our dwelling place. Now I say that as we enter into the psalm, and uh, over the past, I mean, I've, I've encountered this thought in our culture for a while that I want to point out. And I've encountered it actually in a more pronounced way over the last fall, um, where people have this idea in our culture that you're free to choose what you want to believe. And we would affirm that too, you know, that we want people to be free to choose Christ. But sometimes they add on to that. In fact, it's, we're swimming in it in the culture that whatever you choose to believe is valid because you chose to believe it, which is not true. We wouldn't affirm that. There is something that's true, and there is something that's not true, and not everything that we choose to believe is valid. And if challenged with most people, we'd recognize that they'd probably say, yeah, you're probably right. But we live in such a non-judgmental culture where that's one of the cardinal sins that nobody ever wants to challenge that. With God, we have a home and a purpose. Without God, we're homeless and aimless. The problem with that, that idea that lives out there in our culture that whatever you choose to believe is valid and good because you chose to believe it, if we choose to believe that, uh, then what we end up doing is having a life of relatively no purpose, or at least we couldn't define what the purpose is, or say why that purpose is right or wrong. And we end up living a life where we know we should be moral in some way. And I can, I can sort of prove that culturally because, you know, one of the key things that we're talking about so much in culture, and rightly so, many times is justice. It's a moral issue. We feel that in our culture, but, but if pushed, somebody might not be able to tell you why something's right or wrong. Why they, they believe we should actually be moral, and why there's a direction that we should be going in our life and our purpose. I think Psalm 90 is one of those that, that grounds us in what God's doing. What God's doing in history and what God's doing in his creation with us. And so there's a, a fancy word or a little piece of a word that's used in Greek to kind of tell us this. It's called telos. Uh, people use it for bigger teleology and all this kind of thing. Something that has an end. And, and I think what we see in Psalm 90 is we, so, we start to see an end and a beginning in there for paying attention and some things that we ought to do in the middle. And I think today we're going we're gonna to put ourselves between those two poles of the beginning and the end. We'll, we'll have a little chart in a moment and talk about what happens in the middle because that's where we end up with in this. You know, if we, we know that 
that where we're going, there, there is an end to this life. And there is a purpose, as it turns out, God's given us. Psalm 90 has a lot of how and what, but it also has some why written in there, which is what the end tells us. As we read the Psalms, um, Psalm 90 is no exception. Uh, I think we should read the Psalms as the church has done historically and really in a very pronounced way in the Middle Ages and the Reformation. Uh, Christologically is a fancy word that is with Christ in mind. It points towards the coming of Christ and what God's doing in Jesus Christ. And I think we'll see that today. And so I want to give a little, as we continue to frame this before we get to the psalm, I want to give a little sort of syllogism, I guess is what it is, that I came up with to simplify the story of Scripture pointing to Jesus that I think we need to have in mind as we look at the last bit of the psalm. And that is this. It's not going to be on the screen, but I'll tell you it's five points, and I'll repeat some of them if you're taking notes. God created humans in his image with purpose. He had a point in what he did. He chose it, and he had a point. So God created humans in his image with purpose. We have damaged what God created. So we, the humans, have done that. So God created us with purpose. We've damaged what God created. And the result, among many things, the result is relational distance with God. We feel out of sync with him, not in relationship with him because of that sin. Which also, if you get to purpose, puts us in a position where we know we have a purpose, but out of that relationship we don't know what it is. So our tendency is to worship other things, idols, very easily. To put that energy that God's given us towards the wrong thing. The fourth thing that we can say then is that Jesus is our most visible and clear impression of God. So we recognize this. We were created in the image of God. We damaged what God created. The result is relational distance from God. And Jesus, God in the human body, is our most visible and clear impression of God. That leads us to the fifth thing that's important for us to recognize is for that image of God that's been broken in us to be restored, we must become like Jesus. That's the purpose. That's the end goal. That's the telos. Philippians 3, 18 through 21 is a great passage that highlights how this works out or what this purpose is. It says, for as I have often told you before, And now tell you again, even with tears, many live as enemies of the cross of Christ. Their destiny is destruction, their God is their stomach, and their glory is in their shame. Their mind is set on earthly things. But our citizenship is in heaven, and we eagerly await a Savior from there, the Lord Jesus Christ, who by the power that enables him to bring everything under his control, will transform our lowly bodies so they will be like his glorious body. Even built into the name Christian is the idea that we are supposed to be little Christs. We're supposed to be like him in every way. We're supposed to be transformed into that image. And it turns out that that task is an unhuman task. Only God can accomplish that, which he's doing through Jesus Christ and then by the power of his Holy Spirit in us. I think that's important to frame where we go today as we round out Psalm 90, to understand that, that God has a purpose. And so here's an image that will pop up here, um, and we get a start and a finish line. I think the psalm gave us a start and a finish line, but the finish line came in the middle, the way it, it pointed it out. At the beginning, Lord, you've been our dwelling place, verses 1 and 2 is what it said. 
Regardless of our life circumstances, Lord, you're the place where we find meaning and purpose. We, should, we cannot find it anywhere else, even if we'll try. We, but, but we constantly try and pitch our tent elsewhere. We constantly try and find a home away from our dwelling place because of our sinful nature. And then Psalm 90 verse 12, I think, gives us that end goal that's in mind there. Put in us a heart of wisdom is what we're told. And that contrasts with verse 8 where it's the secret sins that are there. We try and hide from you and hide what's wrong from you and live in that relational brokenness even though you're supposed to be our dwelling place. But what you're telling us is that our heart needs to beat like your heart. We need to be in the closest relationship possible with you. That's what you design, right? We were created in his image, damaged by the fall, restored in Jesus Christ, putting us a heart of wisdom. So let's find ourselves in this story today as we continue through it. We'll have three other points that we'll bring up because as I looked at the psalm, and we'll read it, the last verses here momentarily, there were three words that stood out as important to link everything together in the midst of that story. So let's hear Psalm 90, 13 through 17. It says, Relent, Lord. How long will it be? Have compassion on your servants. Satisfy us in the morning with your unfailing love that we may sing for joy and be glad all our days. Make us glad for as many days as you have afflicted us, for as many years as we have seen trouble. May your deeds be shown to your servants, your splendor to their children. May the favor of the Lord our God rest on us. Establish the work of our hands for us. Yes, establish the work of our hands. This is the word of the Lord. That first word, relent. Some of you have turn or return. Depends on your translation. Um, there's a bit of a, a flex in what's encompassed in that word. It can mean relation or distance, like physical distance. I don't think that's what it's getting at here. Um, first and foremost, I think it means something to the effect of attention. You see this in some Old Testament passages. Attention in the sense of, Lord, hear me. I'm calling, listen. Are you there? That kind of sense. Second way that, that we run into it, like I said, it's not a distance thing, although it does get used that way in the Old Testament. Uh, the book of Ruth is a great example. They were in one location, then they came back home. That's, that's the way relent turns. They turned around. But it, it does get used, and this gets more to uh, part of the point if we kind of put it together with the attention piece. It means relational distance is how it gets used. The book of Job, it gets used a couple of times there with that in mind, that relational distance Job feels kind of from his other people and from God, and in the Psalms, in a number of different places, not just Psalm 90, we see this. Lamentations actually is another place, and I think this is worth highlighting, Lamentations 1.8 says, Jerusalem has sinned greatly, and so has become unclean. All who honored her despise her, for they have seen her naked. She herself groans and turns away. And you can see there's a sense of not locational, but turning in shame. And there's a relational brokenness that's there. And I think that's important to point out because there's a, there's a kind of a feeling that you get in that verse, isn't there? You read that verse and you, you don't feel good. It feels like something's wrong. And so as we consider, part of what's included in that word is the sense of, God, are you listening? Are you there? 
And part of what's in, encapsulated in that word is that relational distance, if you will, a distance not being spatial. But as you hear that and as you hear lamentations, do you ever feel this way with God? Do you ever have these moments where you don't feel like God is hearing what you're saying? You don't feel listened to. You feel disjointed and, and like there's a longing, but you don't feel close. I think that's what the word is getting at there. Relent, turn. We don't feel like you're there. But as it turns out, if we read through scripture, we recognize that, and Moses points this out for us too, God didn't move and it's not God's fault that that feeling is there. He is there. He's present. He's ready to show us compassion. We'll say more about that in a moment. He's ready to lavish that compassion out. And as I said, you know, we, we live in a world that is disjointed. Sin has made that a problem. We're part of the problem. And we feel angry about sin sometimes. We feel angry about injustice, certainly. But that same injustice is what wars in us. That same injustice is what makes us feel as if God has turned from us when we've actually turned from him quite often. And it happens in different ways. We feel like God's not listening sometimes. We feel relationally distant from God sometimes. And sometimes we have turned. We've sinned. We've turned. We're trying to keep him hidden. We're trying to keep things away from him. Sometimes we've turned and it wasn't really, an, uh, we didn't try too real hard. We just did over time. Sometimes we're standing there with our fingers in our ears saying, God, can you hear me? I can't hear you. Right? And sometimes there's just so much relational or uh, uh, ambient noise around us that even when we say, God, I want to hear from you. Okay, you didn't answer in five seconds and I can't hear you through the noise. I'm going to go do something else. There's all kinds of different ways that we end up in this position. But one, a third way that this word relates here, this relent word is actually related to the first words of the passage, to dwell. Relent, turn so we can dwell together again, God. That's what Moses is asking. I want to be in the same place as you in relationship. And we know that we can be sometimes locationally in the same place as someone, but relationally not. I'm pretty sure we've all experienced this. I'll give you a story from my own life. Uh, not one of my better moments. When I was in college, my first year of college, I was uh, at a small Bible college in Canada. And then I, I went to school in Chicago after that. And one of our classmates from that Bible college, he and actually all of his family were killed in a car accident in Saskatchewan. And so... This is a college move. A bunch of us that had been friends of his decided to drive from Chicago to Saskatchewan. Not like the border, but like up there uh, in the winter. So that's part that doesn't really enter. And we fortunately didn't run into much, but it was a kind of a silly idea all around to go up there for the funeral. But we went up there. Now, on my side, it, was, it ended up being a good trip. And we ended up, you know, a lot of our classmates showed up and it was, it was a good memory. Um, to remember him and his family and be there for this community that was suffering. But um, I had not adequately planned as a college student for a couple tests and papers coming up right as we needed to return. Again, some of you may have had that experience in college too. And so I was getting anxious as we were up there, which my anxiety then turned to grumpiness and a bit of jerkiness towards my friends who were there. 
because I really wanted to get back because I didn't bring the stuff with me, of course, either. You know, all this good planning would have been useful at this point. And so locationally, I was in the same place as everyone. Relationally, I was not, right? They're all doing one thing and I'm, I'm grumpy. I'm kind of being a jerk until one of my friends finally just looked at me and said, stop being a jerk. <laughs> What's wrong with you? And I said, okay, that snapped me out of it. Okay, okay, I get it. I needed recalibration. Relent, Lord. We want to turn to you and we want you to turn to us. We know you're not far away, but we don't feel like we're relationally together. Turn to us, Lord. And so if we're going to put this on our journey and put this in a prayer on the image before us, we'd put it simply this way. Lord, put us back on track with you. That's what it's getting at. And, and you could make that a prayer this week. Lord, put me back on track with you. I feel disjointed. I feel a longing. Let's walk together. That's exactly what Moses is asking there. Second word that stuck out to me is the word satisfy. And Brian did a great job of bringing that up this morning. To be satisfied is not bloated and not hungry, but just right. Right? You just got the right amount of food, for instance. Psalm 145, 19 has a different way of saying it. It says, he fulfills the desires of those who fear him. He hears their cry and saves them. He fulfills the desires. There's enough. The problem that we encounter in Psalm 90 is verse 15. Make us glad for as many days as you have afflicted us, for as many years as we have seen trouble. They obviously were unfaithful to God. Moses is clear about that. They were disciplined in the process. And then Moses has this very human way of coming about how to get back on. Relent, Lord. Okay, we've covered that. And the amount of time that we were unfaithful, can you balance that out with an amount of time that you're faithful? Which thanks be to God that that's not how he seems to operate. Because throughout the Old Testament, you find this in a number of places. Um, and I'm just going to quote the second commandment here from Exodus 25 and 6, where God says, You shall not bow down to them, idols, or worship them. For I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, punishing the children for the sin of the parents to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me. And sometimes people stop there and look at the Old Testament and say, gosh, that Old Testament God is so mean. He's not. Same God as the New Testament, incidentally. Um, and he's really compassionate and loving, as it turns out. Because what happens next is this, verse 6, but showing love to a thousand generations of those who love me and keep my commandments. God says, I don't just want to balance out the scales. I want to dump compassion on you, Moses. Right? I want this to work. I want this to work so much that you're, you're going you're gonna to see it and see it and see it and see it and be satisfied. You're going to taste and see that the Lord is good. Now there's something that that should do. There's a title change that then happens or a, a relational change that happens here that Moses reflects on in Psalm 90. We'll get to that. It's verse 16. We'll reference it here in a moment. But you ever go to stores and they give you the little survey at the end? You get the receipt. You know, sometimes they're this long, sometimes they're this long for like one product. And at the receipt, it ends, got a receipt. Take a survey online, get 10% off the next thing or 5% off for a free burger or whatever it is, right? Um, and or a chance to win a drawing for that you'll never win, that kind of thing. 
And so you fill out the survey and they want satisfied customers. They want you to know that your feedback matters, come back again, we really want this to work. And what you have is customers, right? And that's perfectly fine in a business. But there's a title change that happens here that's not that way. Verse 16, may your deeds be shown to your servants, not customers. May your deeds be shown to your servants, your splendor to their children. That's a different relationship to have with God. Are you satisfied with God's provision and promises in your life? Because when we forget our purpose, we can easily approach God as a dissatisfied customer. We can easily approach God seeking his services that they would change a little bit and we can be angry when, I don't get our, when we don't get our way. But when we approach God as a servant, we're going to find satisfaction in what God provides. We're going to find purpose even in times of hardship. And how do we know this is the case? Well, verse 14 had it nicely stated. The second half, it says, you know, satisfy us with your unfailing love. But what's the, what's the fruit of that? That we may know, sing for joy, and be glad all our days. That's the response of a servant who's satisfied. If we place this on the journey that we had before between the beginning and the end, purpose and the direction that God has for us. If we were to put this in a prayer form, what we're simply saying to God is, fill us with your presence, Lord. Fill us with your presence that we may know your joy and gladness. Third word that stuck out to me this week that's worth pointing out is the word establish. That's from verse 17. May the favor of the Lord our God, rest on us. Establish the work of our hands. I had to read that a couple times because I kept thinking it was your hands. Establish the work of our hands, he says. Yes, establish the work of our hands. There was, in the time of COVID, when churches were reopening and businesses were thinking about reopening and people were still masked up everywhere and the vaccines were coming out and there was still a lot of disarray and there was a lot of question in the air about who should open up, when should open up, all that kind of stuff. Um, we were opened up by this, the point that somebody flagged this social media post for me. It's from somebody in another state, far away, church you wouldn't know, nothing about that. There's no, no relation to us in the room. But this person said, uh, that posted on social media that their church was about to reopen. And they only go like once a year at best, but it's their church. And I'm about ready to write my pastor a nasty letter and tell him how dumb this idea is. Now, I like feedback from people, but there's a different level of feedback that we're going to take in. And anybody would do this, right? Um, somebody who's marginally connected, barely connected, sending a, a nasty letter, I'm going to count that as two cents if I get that letter. Somebody who's fully engaged in, and, and comes to me with a a civil conversation about how they think things are in the wrong direction, I'm going to take that totally differently as a pastor. But any of us would do the same thing with people that are relationally close versus those who are far away, right? And so when we consider that, when it comes to uh, 
our time with God, if somebody spends their time ignoring God, doing what they desire as their main thing, oblivious to God's desires or even the opposite of what God's desires are, should they expect the favor of the Lord in their life? I'm actually not going to answer that for you. I think it's a worthwhile question, though. What I think we see in the text, though, is a proper posture that we ought to have towards God in order to have a close relationship. Moses, and he's speaking on behalf of the people that he leads as well, they have a repentant posture. They have a posture that says, Lord, turn to us as we turn to you. We did wrong, and now we're turning and trying to correct that. Will you receive us back into your dwelling and care? And the evidence of that, I think, comes out in a few different places. It comes out in the fact that they have a servant heart rather than an entitled or customer heart. It comes out in the sense that they would have joy and gladness in their heart rather than anger or bitterness or any of those other things that might come in there. And what these two verses that, and this is the Hebrew poetry way of putting an exclamation point on something to say it twice. They say it twice so it's important. What we do takes on different meaning then. Everything we do in our everyday lives has different meaning when we're under the dwelling of God and in close relationship with him. We now do it for his glory and for no one else's. And we know our purpose in doing it. John Calvin about this passage says, Moses intimates that we cannot undertake or attempt anything with the prospect of success unless God become our guide and counselor and govern us by his spirit. And if we're to place this on our our map that we put forward, our timeline this morning, all we're simply praying at this point is restore our work to your purpose. Everything we do with our hands, with our minds, with our attitudes, Lord, may that be because we have a heart of wisdom and we're living that way. The small groups that are going through um, the sermon-based questions, some are, some aren't, Totally fine. But if you are, you're going to be actually challenged with a task that looks at this this week. But I would just encourage anybody, even on a personal level, to take a look at this. It's been sent out in the you know, Friday email. It's on the website, on the small group page. It's on version if you're using that on your phones right now. And just take a look at this. And, and there's a project that you can see outlined there that I've already done with our college Bible study in a different way. And it's, it's really fruitful to take and chart out your life story in the midst of this chart from beginning to end. And I find it very instructive and informative to begin to then consider what are my attitudes and actions, how how have I been shaped by what's happened in my world, and how do I respond to God in light of that? And I'm going to encourage you, you can use these as prayer points this week, but take time to actually think about your response to God and your purpose in life as a final thought on Psalm 90. Let's pray. Lord, renew our days. Renew our purpose. Through your Son, make us new and help us clear out our life clutter so we can hear you clearly. Satisfy us with your presence. Fill us with the joy that comes with your heart of wisdom. Provide us with the gladness that results 
when a heart is freed from secret sin. Put us back on track. Fill us with your presence. Restore our work to your presence. We could do none of this ourselves. It's only through your Holy Spirit that this is possible. Give us your spirit today that we may do your work with joy. Amen.